We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The weekend is finally here. Take a deep breath and enjoy it. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, this will get you in that cottagey mood. Good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, welcome to the fun. Uh, another big day. Well, not really. It's kind of a slow news day, which is, you know, uh, is that a bad thing? Really? When you stop to ponder it? I don't. Uh, and, and I guess uh, we're seeing some updates coming uh, coming in from Ottawa, officially two uh, tornadoes there uh, yesterday and uh, some damage done uh, in through construction sites and such. But thank goodness uh, it could have been a lot worse than what it was. Uh, so good news there as they try to clean up. Also, some uh, storms hitting uh, Quebec, which is uh, leaving them without power. The other big story, and this is out of Hollywood, and we certainly know that the writer's strike has been going on for a while. Or do you know that the writer's strike in Hollywood has been going on for a while? Uh, the late night shows and such uh, are all dark. That being said, time of the year when um, uh, they're still kind of off. They start shooting soon for, for September and such. But uh, now the actors have joined the writers on the picket line. Apparently, this is the first time this has been done since uh, the 1960s and such. So uh, interesting to see what happens there. And, it, you know, I was talking uh, to Bill Brio about this a while ago, and it's not so much about missing your favorite show or waiting for it to come back or such, is how much it will change habits of people who... You know, maybe, uh, for example, watching the late night shows every night and then, you know, I've been watching them because they've been reruns. So now I'm not going to bother anymore. Uh, it'll be fascinating with the technology that we have if it changes habits uh, in any way. Uh, what else? Oh, locally, the the Peregrine, uh, Peregrine Falcon, official bird of Hamilton. I think the crane is because there's so many of them in the city. Look around. It's a great thing. There's a building boom going on. Well, of sorts. Uh, so the Peregrine, uh, Peregrine Falcon, the official bird of Hamilton, which is so great to see. I mean, I've been covering this uh, story for years and this just uh, dedicated group of people that uh, have done so much to nurture these birds uh, through difficult times to where they are now. And it's literally an annual event when uh, we see them perched on, at the top of the Sheridan and uh and and watch the youngins born and and jump out into uh into their first flight and such some of them going straight down and then these people just pick them up and put them back in the nest it's it's unbelievable to see and well deserving uh the official bird of hamilton the peregrine falcon and really at the end of the day how can you disagree with that all right a jam-packed show there you go there's a little one now they're still looking at them all aren't they cute uh, there's, uh, lots going on today. We got a pair of Forge tickets to, uh, in Hamilton, uh, with Hamilton, with Hammerhead Trivia coming up a little later on after the five o'clock news. Also, uh, Robert Thompson's going to be joining us from Syracuse University, uh, entertainment expert, uh, film and TV and such talking about the Hollywood actor strike, what this means for this industry moving forward. And again, uh, not because it's just another actor strike or writer strike or what have you, but at a time when the industry is obviously uh, really changing. Also, Racing returns to Exhibition Place in Toronto. Uh, the Honda Indy is on now and continues through the weekend. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on with the president. Uh, it's, it's celebrating their 35th edition of uh 
the Honda Indy, which is incredible when you uh, when you think about it and you know, how difficult it was to get it started. Also, Professor Steve Jordans, who uh, we've had on many times, psychological uh, psychology department at University of Toronto. He's on a motorcycle odyssey, a Canadian motorcycle odyssey. So uh, for his mental health, I'll bet. And we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR expert, is going to be joining us. The Liberal Party has uh, launched more than a dozen ads on Facebook to provo- uh, promote the government's messaging just days after the Trudeau government announced it would stop using the meta-owned platform because of the ongoing conflict over the Online News Act. So according to the Meta-Ad Library, the Liberal Party launched targeted ads in Atlantic Canada earlier this week to promote the federal carbon pricing amid criticism from premiers on an anticipated energy cost increase with the start of the clean fuel registration, regulations rather, uh, on in July uh, 1st. So uh, it's interesting that um, uh, big, bad, big, bad social media uh, still getting some messages. Let's slip them in through the back door uh, before anyone notices. Also, CEO of Hamilton Food Share is going to be joining us. And of course, you can imagine what the message is there. Uh, we continue to hear uh, of record numbers of people using food banks and 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 people from virtually all walks of life, every ages, every demographic, uh, and it's 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 staggering. And and you know when you think of we have people living in tents in big cities and small towns right across the country, not just in this province. Uh, how can this not be? Uh, felt at food banks when obviously this is the sort of crisis that uh, we're seeing. Uh, again, here's hoping we can come to some sort of uh, solution, but um, it seems odd that uh, Canadians are, are very much now at a crossroads. We're at a point where uh, the housing situation, which you know nobody seemed to care about. Well, I got a house, so what the hell do I care if it's causing? You can't buy one. Um, and and now with people living in tents and such, I think it's become uh, profoundly obvious that uh, Canada has neglected to build, sorry, Ontario at least, and neglected to build for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And we are paying the price right now. Uh, so, um, you know, we're arguing over the green belt, and I understand that, but we have people living in tents. They say we can't go to the green belt, we don't need to. We've got uh, city land we can use. Well, where the hell is it? And this is in every municipality, not just Hamilton. Where are the, Where's that housing? Why hasn't it been built in the last 5, 10, 15 years? We have people in tents, and we're talking Greenbelt. Think about that. Think about that hard. In case you weren't or are, maybe you noticed or you didn't notice, but the Hollywood writers have been out on strike for a long time now. Late night shows have gone dark. And now uh, leaders of Hollywood actors unions have uh, decided to uh, join the screenwriters in the first joint strike in more than six decades. So actors joining the writers on the picket lines, shutting down production across the entertainment industry uh, after talks for a new contract with the studios and streaming services has broken down to talk more about this new world we're living in. Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture, Syracuse University, and with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. How about you? So far, so good. So uh, writers out now, uh, the actors and such joining. How does this change the discussion? Well, it pretty much shuts everything down. I mean, things were grinding to a halt anyway. They were running out of scripts that had already been uh, prepared. Uh, The writers have been on strike now for almost 75 days, 74, something like that. 
Uh, and now with the actors gone, it completely shuts things down. Not only is production shut down, but promotion of stuff that's already produced. So these actors aren't going to be able to go to Comic-Con and do their panels. They're not going to be able to promote their films on social media. They're not going to be able to go on uh, talk shows, those of them that are left uh, after the writer's strike took out uh, late night. Um, so you've got the immediate effect that uh, uh, this stuff isn't going to be promoted. All the films that are coming out uh, you know, day to day. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the effect that uh, shutting down production is going to have down the line when there's not going to be films made that aren't being made now. And, you know, the other thing is this is a lot harder to solve than those old. We talk about that mm. 63 years ago or whenever, 1960, when Ronald Reagan was in the position that Fran Drescher is now the head of the uh, uh, the union. They were basically trying to figure out what to do with residuals for then the new medium of, of television. And it was a relatively simple thing. You had to come up with a formula. There were some other complications. This stuff now that they're talking about between uh, AI and uh, uh, the, the, the smaller number of seasons, and uh, the, the, it's, it's a fundamental different way in which the industry, the entertainment industry distributes stuff, makes it, uh, and all the rest of it. And I, I don't know how they are going to uh, uh, fix this all, not to mention artificial intelligence. The writers seem to be no closer than they were three months ago. Uh, this could go on for a long time. As you mentioned, things have changed so much in every industry, including the entertainment industry. So many platforms now, and, and then, of course, the AI aspect of it, too. Um, is it time to stop trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and something that probably needs to be redesigned from the ground up as opposed to trying to take an old model and add, uh, make amendments to it? Or is that still a good starting point? You know, that's very interesting you say that, because I think in the end, it may need to be this kind of clear cut uh, 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 taking it. You know, the old model is over and try, a lot of it is going to have to be. For example, AI has got to be done from the ground up. There is no precedent for, yeah. uh, for that kind of thing. Uh, this idea, though, of a scorched ground, uh, scorched earth uh, policy of letting this strike go on and on until the you know industry is kind of collapsed and then rebuilding it from the ashes uh, uh, of that is probably also not an optimal way of, of going. Um, I mean, on the side of the actors and the writers, part of it is that uh, you know, when they're complaining about the producers, the bottom line that the producers can never really answer to is when you say, OK, well, what are the what are the salaries of your top executives? They have really huge top salaries. So a lot of the arguments coming uh, from the producer side uh, of this uh, are kind of hard to take with regards to that. But it is true. This industry is struggling for any number of different uh, uh, reasons, certainly theatrical movies. Um, but even with the competition of uh, uh, streaming and everything, um, uh, so much money has been spent for programming and now they're laying people off. It's even if a genie came out of a bottle right now, I'm not sure we'd know what to ask that genie to do. <laughs> what about, uh, obviously, we've seen how this has affected the industry, employees and such, things changing. What about changing habits of the fans? What is this going to look like, presuming they, presumingly they come up with a deal out the other end? Is this going to change habits? Are those audiences still going to be there? Or is this going to splinter the industry even more? 
Well, I think uh, I, I think it's very vulnerable to those habit changes because there were those kinds of things already in place. Uh, COVID accelerated the idea that we were starting to get used to watching movies, pretty recent movies, out of the convenience of, of our own homes and locations, as opposed to dragging ourselves to a theater and, and watching them. Uh, once COVID closed the theaters, we, we got even more in that uh, habit. And while there's been some blockbusters and some good signs, there's also been some not so good signs as to whether that's ever going to return to normal. So that had already been uh, happening. And any of these disruptions uh, are, this is not a good time for added uh, disruptions. You know, one place I think is really vulnerable, you mentioned it a minute ago, Late Night has been off essentially since the writing started, because Late Night writers write stuff on a day-to-day basis. So they've been off for three months. And late night was already beginning to kind of uh, transform as as people weren't watching cable or broadcast TV as much. Uh, late night was beginning to change. And now uh, we've gotten in the habit, all those millions of people who watched whoever, Seth Meyers or Colbert or whoever every night, have gotten out of that habit. That was something yeah. you used to be, even through the summer, be able to see new episodes of. And a a whole programming type type like that may find it hard when they finally come back, uh, may find it hard to get that audience to come back with them. Uh, I, for one, have learned in the last three months that I don't have to stay up till 1230 at night. I can go to bed (laughs) at 11 uh, because there's no late night television to watch. Um, I may just stick to that after they come back. Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Actors joining the writers on strike in Hollywood. Robert, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. As you know, because I'm a bit of a motorhead, racing returns to Exhibition Place on Toronto's waterfront this weekend. The NTT Indy Car Series headlines the Honda Indy Toronto, uh, which, of course, runs on Sunday. To talk more about all of this in this great weekend, Jeff Atkinson is with us, president of the Honda Indy Toronto, and here now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, good afternoon. Yeah, very well. It's an exciting day down here with our Ontario Honda dealers present Honda Fan Friday and support of Make-A-Wish. Got a huge crowd down on the Exhibition Place grounds and a lot of great uh, charitable efforts today for the Make-A-Wish uh, Foundation. So very happy to be uh, involved uh, with this initiative and uh, a great day for the event. So uh, obviously this is uh, Fan Friday and it gives a chance for the fans to get up and uh, close and such. G- give a run through of what is happening on this first day. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. So we are basically racing from 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Fans can come down free of charge with a voluntary donation and what they get to see are a few things. One is the on-track action. We have all different kinds of formulas on the racetrack, whether it be road to Indy cars, sports cars, radical cars, which are kind of like larger go-karts, and then uh, the NTT IndyCar Series, which is our main event on Sunday, which the fans all come down to see on the Sunday. They also practice today, but we're finishing today off with the Tiffany Gate Grand Prix of Toronto with the NASCAR Pinty Series, and that'll be a great way to send the, home, the fans home happy. So uh, to someone who has never experienced this event or an event like this, uh, and, and the Toronto Indy is, uh, the Honda Indy Toronto is one of the pinnacle events uh, in the IndyCar series. To someone who's never experienced it, describe what it's like to, to, to be at this event. Yeah, it's a great follow-up question because it's, a, it's really attack of your senses, right? You don't necessarily need to be a fan to enjoy motorsports. You can come down. You can experience it. You can see a lot of wonderful general mission viewing areas. So you don't necessarily need to buy a seat. You can come experience the best food and beverage that Toronto has to offer and also take in a motorsport event. So it's kind of like a motorsports festival 
at the end of the day. So whether you're you know 12 years old, 20 years old, 50 years old, whatever age you are, uh, there's something to see and do for everyone. And it's important to note that there are uh, lots of races, practice, whatever, over the course of the weekend, as well as the big race on Sunday. There, there are. So we have races every day. Uh, the big race obviously finishes it off on Sunday with the Honda Indy Toronto, the NTT IndyCar Series. But you're coming down on the Saturday uh, and buy a general mission ticket for the event. What you'll see is races in the sports car series, uh, the Road to Indy Series, as well as the Radicals. But the big feature event on the Saturday is the NTT IndyCar Series qualifying. And that is quite the show as it's knockout format. And, of course, the idea behind qualifying to determine where they start uh, in the race. This event's been around since 1986. It's hard to believe. How do you describe the success of this event? Yeah, the, the event uh, has grown significantly in the past two decades, and I think it has a lot to do with the enthusiasm of motorsports uh, throughout the, the world. I think there's definitely been a recharged enthusiasm within motorsports, and if you look at the crowd we had down here last year, it was our largest crowd in two decades, and we're expecting – more the same uh, as we've seen in advance here uh, in 2023. In fact, today, our crowd is, the bleachers are full, the grandstands are full, the suites are full. It's going to be our largest fan Friday we've ever put on. It's it's odd, and you, you brought up a, ver- a very valid point, Jeff, that this is, for some reason, it, it seems that people are really interested in racing again. Sometimes it, it you know goes one way, sometimes it goes the other way. But it doesn't matter what the discipline is, whether it's F1, whether it's Indy, whether it's it's NASCAR or what have you. It seems to be that, that people are now into this again, and it's one of those events that you really have to see live because seeing it on, on a screen just doesn't do it justice. Uh, absolutely. There's nothing else I've seen a motorsport event live, and you know, you can fall in love with the different disciplines, as you suggested, and it doesn't have to be F1, it doesn't have to be IndyCar, NASCAR, whatever it might be. There are all these different disciplines out there, and there's something to really, you know, hang your hat on as you come down to the event, whether you're just coming down for the food and beverage, or you're coming down to see a car racing on the streets that you may drive, uh, because there is a sports car race. You know, you can really connect with, with what's happening, and with the city streets that you and I drive on, anything can happen. So the NTT IndyCar Series, we have 27 cars on the grid, whether you're starting first or last, that person has a chance to win that day. So uh, tips for those that are coming down to take in this event. You said there's general admission areas, what have you, lots of food and, and uh, the, the whole experience. If you've never done this before, tips for those coming down, what should they bring, what shouldn't they bring, how should they get there, uh, parking, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so whether you're driving, we do have parking options available in the local uh, area, but transit's the best way, whether you're coming locally in the TTC or coming – uh, from uh, the afar, uh, Metrolinx and the Go Transit have wonderful packages available for fans coming down to the event site. I encourage fans to check those out at hondaindy.com. But other things to recommend, bring sunscreen. It's sunny. You know, obviously it's yeah. a, a hot event. We do have an indoor area in the Entercare Center where the NTT Car Series paddock or garage is located. And that's a great air-conditioned place to really cool down if you're a little bit overheated. And we also have some water refill stations. So you're welcome to bring a refillable water container and you know fill up your water bottle throughout the weekend at those uh, water locations and encourage fans to obviously do that and try to stay hydrated throughout the uh, long event days. And what about trying to get tickets to the event? Which way is the best way to do that? Uh, general admission? Is the reserved seating? What, what are the options there? Yeah, I encourage fans to check out HondaIndy.com. We do have uh, different levels of seating whether it be reserve grandstand or general admission, uh, you know, this close to the event, general admission is probably the, the most easiest uh, ticket to, to get a hold of at this point. Uh, and you can find those on HondaIndy.com. Uh, weather looks pretty good for this weekend. That being said, what happens if it rains? What, uh, what do they do? Well, thank goodness the cars compete rain or shine. They do have rain yeah. to compete in. 
they they do their best for the fans to put on a show. And uh, hopefully we don't have to deal with any weather, but if we do, they're all prepared for weather rain times. All right. So what are you expecting this weekend from a race perspective? Where is the series? Uh, uh, what can fans expect from, uh, from the Honda Indy uh, come Sunday? I am going to focus on the NTT IndyCar series, obviously being the, the big event on the Sunday. Alex Pelot going into the, the race for Chip Ganassi Racing has long been on quite the roll with the number of races won leading into the event. But Toronto, with how unpredictable the streets are, we have a very interesting pit lane uh, because it is built into the infrastructure of Exhibition Place, and it's very unique to the NTT IndyCar Series circuit. Um, maybe that streak will come to an end this weekend, and uh, we'll have another champion to crown at the Honda New Toronto. So really, the Honda New Toronto, I believe, is a true shifting point in the calendar, and uh, whoever wins this, I, I think, is uh, definitely a threat to win the NTT IndyCar Series championship moving forward. You know, you bring up an interesting point about the pit lane. Uh, you, you uh, as well as running on ovals, obviously, you run on street circuits, and every city must be completely different in what they have to offer and the platform you get to to set up on on and such. What is the biggest challenge of bringing this circus into a city, into a big city? You know, it's 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 definitely a opportunity for any city that's to host one of these events. You know, the economic impact of IndyCars coming into a community is huge for the local community. So, you know, it is a, an honor to host NTT IndyCar Series race in Toronto at the Honda Indy Toronto. Um, we do our best to work with a blank canvas and try to paint that canvas to make sure we can accommodate what NTT IndyCar Series has to offer. So we do our best every year to try to, you know, whether it's expanding car counts or whatever else uh, they're prepared to add to the greater for the entertainment of the, uh, the sport we will do our best to obviously accommodate those, those changes. So this year, uh, the challenge for us was going from 25 cars to 27 cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, definitely a, a special uh, uh, in terms of increase over, over the, the year annually. And, you know, uh, we, we just do our best trying to make the cars fit on all the, the, the space we have. Uh, and, you know, that's a very positive sign, obviously, for a lot of motorsports is that the fields are growing, and you're seeing that here. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's very healthy right now, and it, it all goes back to that enthusiasm with motorsports. So, you know, uh, I, I, I think, you know, the pandemic really changed things to how we, you know, observed and maybe consumed the sport. And, you know, it's definitely thrown it back, I think, uh, in a positive way in 20 years of what the sport was 20 years ago. All right, Jeff Atkinson with us, president of the Honda Indy Toronto. It is on uh, right now, running all weekend long at Exhibition Place. And, of course, the finale, the NTT IndyCar Series, Honda Indy Toronto, happening on Sunday. Jeff, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this weekend. Thanks so much, Scott. We have talked to Steve Jordan's, uh, Professor Steve Jordan's, several times, uh, psychology professor with the University of Toronto. And normally it's around mental health issues, although I'm sure this is in some way as well. Uh, and, and of course, over the course of the pandemic and stuff, he's given us some great advice on uh, how to get on with our life. Well, now he is doing just that as he and his wife are undertaking a Canadian motorcycle odyssey. And they're at the halfway point, and oddly enough, uh, in Toronto at the uh, at the Honda Indy, as we were just talking to the president moments ago. Steve Jordans is here, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So this is, I think this is hilarious, Steve. This is absolutely great because, uh, to me, this is all about your mental health. Tell everybody what you're doing and why. Yeah, it is absolutely. So and this is all my wife's doing. I blame her totally. My wife and I are riding our motorcycles from the eastern part of Canada to the western part. But, of course, we had to get to the eastern part. So, so far, we've gone from Toronto 
uh, all the way to Cape Spear, Newfoundland, and then all the way back. And then next week we take off to head towards Tofino. So how long uh, from beginning to end will this have taken? Uh, that's going to be a good question. So it took us about five weeks to do the East Coast Swing because it's really about slow and easy. It's about country roads. It's about getting to know Canada. And it's about to, challenging ourselves, really. And, you know, we all went through this pandemic where we just sat around staring at the walls, which didn't change day after day. And now we're almost living the opposite life where we don't even know where we are when we wake up in the morning. Uh, we plan where we go that day. So uh, I'm guessing it's going to be September or later before we're back in these parts, I would suggest. Now, you said you took you and your wife took up riding later in life. How did that come about? So, well, the, the formal story is this. Our oldest daughter moved out, and my wife came to me at one point. And she said, you know, since Darcy has moved out, I feel a, there's a big hole uh, in the garage. Uh, and she then pointed out to me <laughs> that she's been wanting to ride motorcycles since she was young. She was told it was something that women don't do, um, but she carried that with her. And at that point, which was 2010, she said, I would really like to do this. And, and largely, I've, I've been her loyal sidekick through much of this. <laughs> so I've been just sort of going along with it. I'm like, sure, let's do it. Uh, and so we started in 2010. And then the big thing in 2016, we did a five-day trip around the Maritimes. And, and I think that's when we really got the bug for traveling on motorcycles. Because then it's about the beauty but it's also about all of the problems, all of the issues that arise along the way and trying to get through those. And often the support you get from locals and, and the friends you make as you do that. And, and that's what we've been experiencing all through this trip. You said that this is pretty much done. Uh, obviously, you've got it. You had a plan before you left, but uh, you, you pretty much go on a day to day basis. What's it like yep. to be, for lack of a better word, that free, have no schedule when you're so used to doing what you do every day as a lip for a living. It, it, it is interesting because as, as I think, you know, I live totally plugged in. Uh, usually I'm standing in front of this computer and I'm going right from you know yeah. nine in the morning until at least five at night. And yeah, I've, I've worked hard to detach myself from all that. And it's very strange. It's what I call a transient lifestyle. And we've met people all through this journey, especially on the ferry from Newfoundland, by the way, you meet a lot of people living this sort of transient lifestyle. And it's very strange. You do feel a little detached from space and time. You feel a little like you're drifting. You don't have all those responsibilities, but you also, you know, homeless is too strong a word, but you do feel a little like you don't have that structure that's normally there. Um, and and it's, it's both exciting and, and kind of interesting. We did, when we got back here, we did appreciate that king-sized bed. Uh, we've been camping, you know, we've been, yeah. we, we can't afford a hotel room every night when you're doing it as long as we are, so... We've been living as cheap as we can, living in, in friends' places when they invite us over. And so, yeah, we've enjoyed the 2,000-square-foot suburban lifestyle more than ever. And so and that how, was great. Oh, yeah, go. How, how's the rear end, Steve? I mean, you know, it's a lot of time <laughs> to be on a saddle. Yeah, you know, we, we are trying to do it well. And then we meet different people. And there's a lot of people we meet on motorcycles where it is about how much ground can they cover. And for us, it's not. And so... We try to do about 300K a day. That's usually about three or four, maybe five hours in the saddle. So we have a lot of time to take breaks, and, and we like to hike as well. So it's as much about seeing the cities, meeting the people, um, and then, yes, of course, the ride along the way. So so my butt's doing fine. <laughs> my body's doing fine. The, the motorcycle is, is getting new uh, suspension on the front forks. It didn't do so well after some of the potholes in Quebec. Um, huh. But once it's ready to go, we're off again. 
So you're halfway through now, still have to take out to the, uh, take off for the uh, Western Trek, uh, and especially yep. as a, a professor of psychology, what stands out in your mind halfway through the journey? What have you learned so far about yourself, whatever? Yeah, so, so the really fascinating thing, and this is something I've been pushing a lot, there's an organization called GenWell, the GenWell Initiative, and, and they're all about, especially post-pandemic, how we need to reconnect as human beings and, and really you know, become human with each other again. And we run into that time and time again. And I've learned a formula. If you look a little weird and out of place, we have our fancy gear on. And if you're in trouble, if you have a problem and a local can help you, they do it in a minute. And in the Hmm. process, you become good friends with that person. So what I've learned is it's really easy to make new friends. Um, Just by being humble and, and asking for favors from people, it's amazing what comes out of that. So, yeah, as a psychologist, I've just watched the power of human connection over and over, how it makes us happy when someone helps us, but it also really makes them happy. And it's, it's a really sort of easy formula we all have if we would kind of take that time a little bit more to connect with strangers and just, you know, be open to that sort of interaction. Wow, sounds great. Uh, and, and we're going to chat with you again out the other end once you get done. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, great. University of Toronto, uh, the Canadian Motorcycle Odyssey. If we want to follow it, Steve, how do we do that? Yeah, so it's a YouTube channel and it's called A Freaking Canadian Motorcycle Odyssey. It's <laughs> A and not the, because we want other people to, to have their own freaking Canadian Motorcycle Odyssey. So this is just ours. Steve Jordan's professor of psychology, University of Toronto, but not today, uh, halfway of making it back away across the country. Steve, good luck. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. You as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember that a while ago, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada launched C-18, which the whole bill was designed to make uh, social media pay traditional uh, journalism, traditional media companies for their content. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, the media companies have said no, and as a result of that have said that uh, not only that, but they are going to pull uh, Canadian content news services off of their site, so you won't be able to access that information anymore. Um, hurt? Help? I'm not sure. Uh, but oddly enough, when all of this was going down, they said that, the, that being the Liberal Party, that that was it. They weren't going to use these platforms or this platform anymore. And now we find out that uh, the Liberal Party had launched more than a dozen ads on Facebook to promote the government's messaging just days after they announced that it would stop advertising on the Meta-owned platform because of the ongoing conflict over the Online News Act. Uh, and apparently these ads were targeted in Atlantic Canada earlier this week to, provo- uh, to promote federal carbon pricing amid criticism from premiers on anticipated energy cost increases. To talk more about all of this and where we are, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Is this sucking and blowing at the same time? How do you win this war? <laughs> am I ever glad you said that? <laughs> <laughs> You can say it. Feel free. It's Friday. Go for it. Say sucking and blowing, you know Alyssa. You know what? I, I have to tell you, when, when you know, Will first called me about this, asked me about this story, I said, well, this is just really sucking and blowing. But gosh, I can't say that. Yes, and you then, can. I mean, the first words out of your mouth are, I thought, well, okay, the gloves are off. <laughs> um, yes, yes, it is. And, and, you know, from a 
communications perspective, you got to look at this because, you know, if you're called on the carpet saying, well, you said not to do it, now you're doing it. But obviously, if you still think it's the most, um, you know, efficient way and effective way of talking to Canadians and getting a narrative across. But yet, you say that it's not, we shouldn't be doing it. Well, I, I mean, you know, when you look at what the, um, what their spokesperson said, it was like, well, you know, uh, we had to make sure that we were, we had to say something against the conservatives. And um, this was our own, this is basically our only way to do that. And, you know, uh, hinted that, so the communications director himself said, hinted that the party had to respond to attacks from the conservatives. Well, there's lots of ways to respond to party attacks, Scott, as you and I both know. Um, and you can, you know, do a mass radio blitz. You know, you can you have your comms people say, well, we'd like to talk about this. Would you like to comment on it? And they, they blame the conservatives. So with their advertising choices, reckless policies and rhetoric, Pierre Polyev's conservatives are doubling down on negative and divisive politics. So they feel this is the only way to fight fire with fire. I don't know. I mean, that's sort of like it's good for the goose, but not for the gander. And and what's interesting is there's two things really to, to look at, look at this in uh, I feel, Scott, is that number one, who's covering the story? And number two, will Canadians care? And I think that when the government is looking to do something that is likely controversial, they, they weigh their options and they say, well... You know, how many people are really going to get mad about this? Will, be the, will this be a tempest in a teapot? Will uh, an outlet like the uh, National Post will they, and their affiliates, will they be the only ones who cover it? So if we do it, how much trouble will we get into? And I think that's how they made this decision, Scott. Because Canadians... when you look at who covered this, it's only the National Post and some of their affiliates. Like there hasn't been a lot of widespread, at least online coverage of it. And this is the way they sort of like, not cover themselves, but I think this is the way they rationalize making a decision such as this. Of course, Canadians don't care. They care more, they care more about the green belt than they do that the, there's people living in tents in every park across the land. Anyway, I digress. That's another story. But how confident is the government in their position on all of this if they're still using it? You know what? I don't, I don't know. It's so odd. And I think that in the Senate, they wanted to make some amendments of it. And then the heritage minister said, no, 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 no amendments. We're going to do it just this way. And I, I, I don't understand unless they think that there's going to be some big win attached to it. So I do know that in Australia, you know, I think Google uh, or Meta has been, you know, starting to pay outlets for news. So I think that there's a bit of a wearing down process. And if more countries fall in line, well, maybe there's uh, strength in numbers. So I think they're playing a real long game on this, Scott. I mean, that's the only way I could figure out. But, in, you know, we're, right now the Liberal Party saw a very, according to them, a pressing and urgent need. And they defaulted to this platform of buying ads in a place where they don't want the rest of Canada to be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and we keep using Australia as the example of, well, look what they're doing. And it's like, well, you know, mover and shaker, Australia, I don't know. Uh, at the end of the day, we were all told when this came out 20 years ago, we were supposed to put our links up there uh, because that drives uh, hits to the website, which is exactly what it does. We create the content. They're merely the information highway. Where is this going? I mean, should we should they be paying us for content that we put on their sites? You know, 
the rules change every day, Scott, and I think it's really hard for, you know, the average person to keep up with, you know, where is this at now? At first, when we started, uh, you know, this sort of information highway and people were looking at how to monetize, um, you know, the Internet, you know, you heard all about banner ads. Remember banner ads? No. And they were apparently the way to go. So you would you would go on to, let's say, you know, the Hamilton Spectator site and all along the banner, probably under... You know, oh, I'm sorry. Banner ads. Yes, go ahead. Right. There'd be a big, there'd be a big ad that you click on. Maybe it's from the bay, 25% off, and that was supposed to work. I think it worked for a little bit, but then I think that most people would go onto a site and they go, I don't want an ad. I don't want to click it, it until, you know, cookies became a, part, uh, became a thing. Right. So banner ads sort of came and went. And since that time, it, you know, mo- the media, period, has been figuring out how to make up for lost a- advertising revenues. And they haven't yet done that. And the way they're doing that right now is, you know, by cutting their workforce. So I think everybody is just trying to figure this out. It's almost like flying a plane and building it at the same time, Scott. That is yeah. the sense that I am getting. And there is everything is a litmus test as far as I'm concerned. They're going to see if this works. And if it doesn't work, well, then they'll, they'll probably backpedal. But in the meantime, you know, the Liberal Party still feels that this is a viable and effective way of reaching and targeting Canadians. So they went ahead and used it. And then blame the Conservatives for the reason they <laughs> Hey, the message is the platform now, not the content. Sound familiar? Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, uh, talking about where we're going in a social media world. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. That was very Marshall McLuhan of you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, we have seen uh, the situation in a post-pandemic world where uh, when it was ending, we all wanted to get out and enjoy ourselves. Now, nobody can afford to do anything, whether it's uh, food inflation, whether it's uh, housing, what have you. Uh, Life has become very, very difficult for everybody, including those that are uh, the most vulnerable. The CEO of the Hamilton Food Share has said that Hamilton is at a crisis level. Food banks, uh, food banks registering 40%, 40% more visits this past June compared to the same month last year. To talk more about all of this, Karen Randall with us, CEO of Hamilton Food Share, and here now. Karen, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Um, what are your thoughts of where you are right now? Well, I think you you said it perfectly. The emergency food system in Hamilton is facing an absolute crisis with the number of visits that we are seeing each and every month from households who are experiencing hunger. I guess if we've got people living in tents uh, virtually in small towns, cities, whatever, across the land, we shouldn't be surprised that, that the, the need for food banks has grown uh, even more. How do you explain it? What what are you hearing? So we we're seeing two two very um, clear trends happening in the food bank sector. The first is we are seeing new households who have never relied on food banks before needing to turn to food banks because of the incredible increase in costs of food that we're seeing. The other piece is we're seeing households who maybe could buy groceries for one or two weeks of the month and then come to a food bank once or twice are having to increase the number of visits they make because their dollar is no longer stretching as far as it as it could be or should be. And so uh, we're really becoming a place where households are turning to ensure that they can eat throughout the entire month. 
Uh, and from what I hear, you're here experiencing all ages experiencing all ages using the facility. Absolutely. And in Hamilton, 39% of the individuals served are children. And we continue to see an increase year over year in the number of seniors who are relying on food banks. As we know, seniors live on a very fixed income. And when the cost of living goes up, when the cost of food goes up, their income does not match that. So we're seeing um, an aging population more reliant on food banks than ever before. What is the response, the feedback from new users? What do they say to you? What, what are the, some of the stories you hear? Well, at Hamilton Food Share, we don't directly serve individuals accessing food banks. Our role is to raise food and send it out to 23 programs we support. But we're really hearing that people are just, um, you know, they they just don't have what they need to get by in a month. Over 2,600 households in Hamilton pay, um, who access a food bank, sorry, pay more than 50% of their rent. Uh, of their income on the rent and utilities. So there's just not money to meet those other basic needs. And food is something no individual and no family can just go without because they can't afford it. So more and more uh, food banks are just becoming a part of people's routines to get them through the month. Obviously, if the demand is up 40%, uh, what you're asking for from others is up 40%. What do you hear from your suppliers? How are How are you making ends meet? Well, one of the reasons that uh, one of the goals we have right now is to really reach out to our members of city council and ask them what they feel the role of the city is in terms of supporting the sustainability of a system that is providing food to over 33,000 people every single month. So that's sort of what our target is with with this um, with this story right now. We know that access to food banks allows people to remain in their houses. We did a research project last year and 46% of the households accessing food banks who were surveyed said that without the support support of a food bank, they would absolutely become homeless. So we're asking where we fit in the housing and homelessness strategy that the city is developing and looking for an investment to be made in the sector. Man, it, Karen, it seems like it, we're we're you know more band aids, no, no solutions. Yeah. I, I I don't know I don't know what that means. I don't know how that helps the conversation in any way. But it seems like we're we're chasing the horse here. Yeah, well, poverty is is very complicated. There are a lot of drivers that cause someone to live and stay in poverty, and uh, things like housing prices, food prices. You know, all of those things continue to go up, and incomes continue to remain stagnant. We know that people who are on uh, earning minimum wage, they can't afford to live in Hamilton. So these social safety nets, such as the emergency food system, become part of what they need to get through their month and to ensure they have food to eat. Um, and if if we're not there meeting the need, then we know people are going to use the money they would pay their rent with to buy food. Hmm. And then we're going to have an even bigger crisis in our homelessness problem in the city of Hamilton. So this is an issue that requires systemic change from all levels of government so that people have an adequate income, so that housing costs are affordable and people can actually survive on the money they receive every month. What are you asking the city of? Um, how can the city help? 
So what we're asking the city to do is, first and foremost, just recognize the amazing work that's happening amongst the the emergency food system. I I think it's important to, to acknowledge that any business, any program that saw a 40% increase in demand for their product or services over a year would require hmm. an incredible infrastructure investment to meet that demand. And food banks are self-reliant. We rely on food donors and fund donors to run. And so we're asking the city to look at what the role is in supporting this system so that we can continue to meet that need and we can continue to make sure any household in Hamilton experiencing hunger has something to, to feed their families with. I remember talking to people involved in food share for years and, and years ago, and the whole idea was this was supposed to be a temporary thing. Yeah. I guess that that's a thing of the past, Karen. Yeah, this has just become a part of what people do to get by every month. This is no yeah. longer a temporary solution um, until there's significant changes to, to income and the cost of living. I don't see any other option than people turning to food banks for these supports. And the 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 uh, increases that you're seeing, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. we're seeing tents in parks and such. Um, is there anything we can learn from this post-pandemic period? Because, as you've said, it nobody has seen it this bad. Um, and perhaps now that we're seeing the reality of what it is, a 40 percent increase, uh, people living in parks and such. D- does this drive the point home that that we need to take a serious look at this? Well, it's really interesting because over um, the two years of COVID, the federal government provided a significant amount of funding to the emergency food sector through Food Banks Canada. And that's the first time there's ever been uh, a real investment made in this sector and these services on that level of government. And so one of the things that is very clear is we need to continue to make hunger um a conversation that's happening at all level levels of government, that hunger needs to remain top of mind for all politicians and that all levels of government have a role to play in ensuring every person living in Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada has access to what they need to survive because the gap between people's income and what they need to get their basic needs met just continues to grow. Uh, Really quickly, how can we help, Karen? What should we do? Um, I've said it a lot over the past few years, and I'll say it again. Every time someone gives, whether it's a can of food, whether it's a truck of food, whether it's a dollar, whether it's a thousand dollars, every gift that's made to your local food bank, make sure someone in Hamilton has something to, to eat. We're only able to do the work we're doing because of the generosity of everyone living in this community. So we just are asking that people continue to remember those experiencing hunger and help in any way they can. Help if you can. Karen Randall with us, CEO of Hamilton Food Share, up 40% this time last year, from this time last year. Karen, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're hearing reports of where some GT area grocery stores are backing away and the alcohol is uh, disappearing from shelves in recent months. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Glad to be with you. 
Why is this happening? Is it too expensive to uh, to facilitate? Uh, people aren't buying, or is theft a big issue? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the answer is yes to both of those. So let's start with a simple concept: the profit margin. How much I charge you, the consumer, versus how much does it cost me? And uh, grocery stores that are selling beer and wine have to source the product not from the manufacturer of the beer and the wine, but from the LCBO, or in this case, maybe the LLBO, the Liquor Licensing Board. So they are not able to get any great deals on the cost of the item to them. And then when they wanted to carry it, remember, not all grocery stores carry it. So they actually had to bid for the opportunity. And as they were bidding for the opportunity, they had to tell the government how much of a markup they were going to put on. The government said up front, look, that number has got to be somewhere between 2% and 7%. And so in high market areas, high volume areas, you saw grocery stores aggressively bid to be able to carry the wine and beer. And that meant that their markup was closer to 2%, whereas on other grocery items, they make three, four, five percent And then, so they're not making as much money. And then finally, they got them into the stores. And you know, the other big push in retail has been to get rid of Uh, cashiers in favor of self-serve. And guess what? Some people, when they go through the self-serve line, are not checking all of those bottles of beer or scanning all of those bottles of wine. So theft has been higher. So their costs are higher. Their revenues are lower. They're not making profit. And now we know that four, three Loblaws and one Sobeys related stores have said, we're out of that market. Um, at the end of the day, really, the only reason to do this, because, again, prices are higher, selection is lower, is really convenience. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I think many thought that this was going to be an experience similar to what it is in the United States, where, as you said, uh, they're buying through suppliers as opposed to a government agency. Uh, is there really any reason to buy any of this at a grocery store? It's, I don't think it's a case that people don't want it. It's just it's not attractive to them. It's not worth it. Right. So to go back to your premise, the the argument first from the government was, well, consumers want it. Consumers tell us they want it. And so then you'd go, well, why do the consumers want it? And again, it seemed to be convenience. Look, if I can get all my products in one store, I don't have to go all over the place. And hey, when I do visit the United States, look, I can get all of this at one place for my picnic or for my outdoor barbecue, whatever it happens to be. Why not do it? And you're absolutely right. I think many people thought the experience would be just like the United States without realizing that our market for selling beer and wine, starting right at the beginning and with the government involvement in it, is different. You know, Scott, I visit California a couple of times a year, and a favorite grocery store of mine, I can get coupons, use coupons to save money on beer, wine, and alcohol. I've never seen a coupon up here in that same way. So it's just a different framework. And I think consumers wanted it. The government can say, we gave it to you. But now the question is, now that you see it, do you still want it the way it's coming out? And that's the same sort of question we could raise with other products like, say, a marijuana. You, you thought maybe it was going to be one kind of thing. Now that you've experienced it the way it is, is it still something you want or in the quantities you want? It's like the NFL coming to Toronto. It's just not the same experience. There's no tailgating. You can't get away with it up here the way you do down there. It's a different experience. That being said, where is this going? Because, again, over it still is valuable shelf space. We know how valuable shelf space is at the retail level. Uh, right. Is that is that going to shrink and make the selection even even smaller? Or are they just, you know, I can make more money selling cookies on that shelf than I can selling beer? Right. Well, that's the argument they're making at the moment. But I think what they're trying to do is turn this back to the government and said, look, 
you know, I yes, I bid a two percent profit margin, and I, I yes, I had my my eyes wide open at the time. But now that I've lived with it, can we renegotiate that deal? Can I make a little more money on this? Can I raise my prices, or will you allow me to source this from another place? So I think what they're trying to do is get the public a little stirred up, saying, "Oh no, no, I still want this in the grocery store." So government, make it happen for me. And I think what they're trying to do is put pressure on the government to either allow a different way of sourcing the product or to allow higher profit margins. I don't know if they're going to be successful. I don't know how much consumers are going to flock to their MPP's office and demand a change in the process. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. I will. Thank you. By the way, not much love lost for grocery stores at the moment. Don't think consumers are going to come to their rallying point. That's a great point. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Many more Canadians will begin receiving Ottawa's climate action incentive payment. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, Starting Friday, that's today, between July 14th and the 21st, Canadians in Atlantic Canada, as well as Ontario and the Prairies, get a tax-free payment through the Canada Revenue Agency, which is meant to offset the cost of federal pollution pricing, including uh, the carbon tax. Uh, Maritime's very upset. July 1 saw prices go up 14 cents a litre. Uh, followed uh, by four cents the week after that. What is the impact of this rebate? Does it make sense as a program? Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are too. So, Michael, it seems odd, and, and many Canadians are uh, don't understand this, it seems odd to collect the tax only to say that it won't cost you as you get a rebate back. Why tax and rebate? So there will be people who will pay more tax uh, than the rebate and there will be people who pay less tax than the rebate. So the idea is if you use a lot of fuel, uh, that is a person that uh, perhaps should be given more incentive to try to reduce their consumption. Uh, they pay a lot of tax. They only get part of that money back in the rebate. Uh, some people who are conserving and not using a lot of fuel uh, and therefore not putting as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere they will get a rebate that's larger than the tax that they pay. Uh, how do they know how much fuel we're using? Because you pay the tax uh, when you you pay the fuel, and then they work it out for the whole province, and then they give back the average amount of that tax to the individuals in the province. Uh, obviously, you pay the tax when you purchase the product and such, but how much of the how much how do they know uh, what formula? How do they come to a a, a formula that determines who gets how much. So they collect the whole amount for the province, say the province of Ontario. And then according to their formula, it, it's not quite that they divide it evenly among people because uh, younger people get a smaller rebate than do adults. But they know the number of people at different age groups in the province and then they give the amount back so that the total amount is dispersed. Uh, there is a, a small exception in that they have 10% back that they give to specially affected businesses and other things, but the 90% goes back. Uh, basically, it's divided evenly among the people in the province with that one adjustment for age. Does this work, Michael, or does it depend on who you ask? 
Oh, I think to some extent it's going to depend who who they ask. But I'm an economist, and economists, uh, by and large, believe that if you want to discourage people from putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, what you do is you put a price on carbon, and then people, through their individual actions, uh, make the choices as to which things they want to cut back on, and they do so in an efficient way. Uh, so, for example. Uh, a couple years ago in the United States, uh, a whole bunch of economists, including Nobel Prize winners, all wrote a, a, a public letter saying that this was the way to, to do things. And they more or less outlined the Canadian system. Let me ask you this, and, and, and I'm sure this is oversimplifying it and comparing apples to oranges. Uh, but obviously, there was a recent rate increase with the Bank of Canada. Uh, some economists have said um, this is going to hurt people more. Uh, just for bringing down the rate of inflation by 1%. Yeah, they want it to 2 It's sitting at about 3.4%. We always know that when you're losing weight, those last few pounds are the hardest. However, many have questioned whether that was the right tactic to imply that much pain, uh, considering that you're so close to the target. Same thing with this sort of uh, issue in the sense that Canada... Um, uh, emits uh, less than one and a half percent of the world's greenhouse gases. Is this the right way to address this? Is is it about bringing down the carbon of a country that brings in one point less than one point five percent, or is it about helping others and a solution, for example, like getting the world off coal? Uh, the majority of Canadians are very concerned about climate change. That's obvious. Where they disagree is how they go about doing it. Is this the right way? So I think there's an argument always that Canada is small in terms of the world, and therefore whatever we do doesn't make that much difference. And I suppose at every individual level, you could say that as well. Um, I am not an expert on on climate change. That's not my expertise. Uh, But I do know that Canada has signed an agreement with a whole bunch of other countries uh, that suggested that this was the way, the the Paris Climate Accords, this is the way uh, to go forward to, to reduce the world climate problem by everybody taking a share. So Canada's share was pretty small, but it was the share that we agreed to. Um, and now, if you believe that target should be met, the, the goal then becomes, uh, how do you achieve it? And uh, as I said, most economists believe that a method such as the carbon tax is the best way to achieve that. So even though we're only making a small contribution, that's always going to be the case for Canada um, in any endeavor. We're always going to be small compared to a larger world. I think in a sense, Michael, that's a red herring. And, you know, well, because we don't contribute much, we don't have to sacrifice as much. I don't think that's the point at all. I really don't. I think what people are saying is, how can Canada help save the planet the most? What can we do that will have the greatest effect on what the world is going through, not what Canada is going through? I don't think it has anything to do with, oh, we're not contributing very much, so we don't have to do very much. I don't, I don't think that's at all. That's the case at all. I think Canadians want to help and usually help more than they need to. But I think the real discussion is how can we make the most impact? Some are questioning if this is a way to make the most impact. Well, uh, there may be other ways to to create more impact, but at the moment, Canada has made this agreement with other countries, uh, some of which are making much larger uh, cutbacks just because they're larger countries with larger economies. We're making a cutback. We've agreed to a cutback at the Paris Accords, which is uh, commensurate to our uh, contribution to the amount of uh, carbon dioxide being put in the atmosphere. 
Uh, and so we're trying basically for the same kind of standard that every other uh, developed economy in the world is trying to reach. Michael Veal with us, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks very much. We've talked about this uh, in the past. We remember it was a couple of weekends ago when the Wagner Group, who was uh, a group of missionaries, or mercenaries rather, not missionaries, uh, mercenaries who uh, were part of Putin's uh, army and in, in, in just uh, horrific battles in Ukraine and such. Uh, then the next thing you know, the group is marching to Moscow and there's chatter of a coup. Uh, and then all of a sudden an about face and everybody's taken off to Belarus and we don't know where everyone is. And now Putin says that uh, the Wagner Group simply does not exist as a legal entity in Russia. That doesn't sound like good news for anyone. Uh, let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And, of course, it would be good news for Ukraine. I, uh, I take that back. Arl, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. So what, give us a bit of an update here, because it appeared that uh, this group did not want to fight in Ukraine anymore uh, for, for I guess, uh, horrific reasons. Uh, so if they don't want to be a part of Ukraine, that's it. They're off to Belarus. Then they have to disband or join the Russian army. Is that what the options are here? We're not sure what the status is. And what we see Vladimir Putin is uh, trying to do is a kind of smokes smoke and mirrors approach, where what we see before our eyes, uh, we are told, is not the reality, and that uh, he is still in charge, everything is perfect, he handles things just the right way, there's no danger, there's nothing to see here, but the reality is far more complex than that. So if I may just take us back uh, a few steps, uh, in this mutiny that happened, it wasn't just that there was a direct military challenge, but it was significantly more than that because Prigozhin had access to a great deal of media and he got this out into the media and he said three crucial things. One was that this was a war. So it's not just some special military operation, but actually a war. And people can be sent to jail in Russia for calling this a war. Second, he said that there was no real threat from Ukraine. There was no danger uh, emanating from Ukraine. Therefore, the justification for the war was all false. And he claimed, precaution, that Putin had been duped. And third, he said that the military leadership from the defense minister to the chief of staff, Gerasimov, they are utterly incompetent. And there are thousands of soldiers who are dying needlessly. So these are profoundly important statements. They are crucial. They are long-lasting. So to use this metaphor that was employed by Lenin, who said, if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. Well, Prigozhin made an omelet. What Vladimir Putin is trying to do now is to reconstitute from that omelet eggs again. And it hasn't been done before. So are we to assume that this force has now either turned in their weaponry or joined the Russian military? There are mixed uh, reports. At one point, uh, the reports from Russia were telling us that thousands of tons of equipment from the Wagner Group, including hundreds of tanks, were transferred away from the Wagner Group to the Russian military. That would tend to indicate that this Wagner Group was decommissioned. 
at the same time, what Vladimir Putin said was that, well, I basically just want to get rid of Prigozhin, but we could have the leader that you have been working under, the executive leader, so to speak, someone known as Gray Hair. The real name is Andrei Troshev, a former colonel in the Russian military. He could lead you, but it doesn't seem that many in the Wagner would like to do that. A good deal of the Wagner group was supposed to transfer to Belarus, but we don't see much evidence of uh, the Wagner troops moving in any significant numbers to Belarus. Uh, Vladimir Putin said that legally the group does not exist, but at the same time he told us that the Russian government had invested $1 billion just in the past 12 months in this group. So he's trying to play it both ways. Legally it doesn't exist, but substantively it is a fighting force. But whether it is a fighting force that is still uh, uh, one that is effective, that is able to perform tasks, that is increasingly less likely. Are we to assume that everyone is in Belarus? No, we, we can't assume that. There's no evidence. Western intelligence sources tell yeah. us that a few may have gone, but most have not uh, gone there, that the camps that were set up by uh, Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, are largely empty. We were told recently by Lukashenko that some Wagner troops are training Belarusian troops. I don't know why they would need to be trained by Wagner forces since Belarus say they are not at war, but this would be relatively small in number. So it would seem that there's a good deal of confusion. We know that key generals have disappeared in Russia, like General Surovikin, who was probably their most effective general, uh, who very skillfully handled the withdrawal uh, from Kherson uh, earlier uh, in the fall. And uh, we have not seen him for quite a while. We know that a uh, uh, lieutenant general, very senior officer, was dismissed because he criticized the leadership of the military. So there seems to be underneath the surface a great deal of confusion. But at the top, Vladimir Putin is telling us, all is well. It is perfect. I am perfect. I'm untouchable. I am winning. This is exactly according to plan. Well, let's see if he can make uh, an omelet into eggs again. Uh, do you think that uh, the leader of the Wagner group is still with us? Do you think he's he's dead? It's an excellent question. Uh, we don't know. It's like looking for Waldo. We haven't seen him mm. in public since possibly June 2nd. Uh, there was a voice recording a couple of times since then, but not in the past uh, week and a half. And so it is very, very hard to tell. In the past, Vladimir Putin had been extremely ruthless. Uh, anyone who challenged him, far less than what has happened here, uh, was basically killed, and often in horrific uh, conditions. Uh, we know that uh, they used polonium-210 to poison a former KGB uh, or the successor of the KGB uh, officer. But... It would be difficult for him to do it openly because he didn't do it right away. He agreed, Vladimir Putin, to amnesty. So he can't have it both ways. But um, in the case of uh, precaution, there is a campaign to publicly discredit him. On Russian television, they show the lavish mansion that he lived in, money that was found, even drugs, wigs for disguises. And the impression is being created that this man was incompetent, even though just some weeks before and months before, 
he was hailed as one of the great heroes, the victor at uh, Bakhmut. So there are these unresolvable contradictions that we are seeing, and they all tell us that the system is not working as Vladimir Putin would like, and that uh, the pressure that is being exerted, even though the counteroffensive is slow, is beginning to take a very heavy toll within Russia. You were talking about how the Wagner leader was getting media attention and brought up a few points as to where Russia was failing. Would that have ever, that message have ever made it back to the Russian people? It did because uh, uh, Prigozhin had access to uh, media. Mm. And uh, also it was the case that when he and his forces were marching towards Moscow, the mayor of Moscow called an emergency uh, invoked an emergency measure and he was going to close down the city before the coup was called off. And this is the center of the empire, so to speak. So the 15 million people living or living in Moscow in the area were certainly aware that there was something very extraordinary happening. And we can't, or at least the Russian public cannot unsee what they've seen to unhear what they heard. Hmm. R.L. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto with an update on what is happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Arl, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. Tie Cat win another one, but boy, a historic loss for Edmonton. Not oh. doing too well. Boy, that's a you tough know, one God, to take. I, I watched most of the game. Once it got out of hand, I went to bed because it was like, okay, we're you know, we know what's going to happen here. Edmonton truly is awful. I mean, yeah. they really are atrocious. And let's not take too much away from the Tie Cats. They won, and they got they had they did what exactly what you have to do. When you play a bad team, you have you have to win. Those can't be the games you go. Oops! So they did exactly what they had to do. But my goodness, that 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 one play where Cornelius, the quarterback, was being tackled and threw with his left hand for a pick six, it, you wouldn't see that stuff in a junior high script. <laughs> like it's truly unbelievably horrible. And you know what's really sad though about it, Scott, is look, every Ticat fan is happy that they got the win last night. Did you see the crowd in Edmonton? Yeah, Edmonton is one of the historic, maybe maybe the historic franchise. I mean, in the seventies and eighties, it was the dynasty. Uh, you know, it's that's the team that led Edmonton to yeah. call itself the yeah. city of champions. And I don't know what they announced as the crowd. There couldn't have been eight thousand people there. They're all at Stampede. They're down in Calgary. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, the Edmontonians. The only thing that gets them out of town is to get to Stampede. You know, the loves they love each other, so that's where they're all yeah, they're all they down do. there visiting their friends in Calgary at the Stampede. It's much like Hamilton and Toronto. They just yeah, yes. No, I, I th- this is one thing though that you do. I think if you're the league, the league. I mean, the CFL per- perpetually has some fire on the go that it has to deal with. This is it right now because you know, as, as great as I say, as, as good as it is that Hamilton got the win, if you're the CFL, you can't be having one of your absolute Western flagship franchises not only be this terrible, but essentially be turning everybody in Edmonton away from the CFL. That, that is a problem. They've they got to hope that 
you know, maybe not against Hamilton, but that they start to get some wins and, and start to put some people back in the stands because this is this is one of the this is one of the cities, one of the markets that if you're the CFL, you're banking on. Okay, this is not one of the problem areas we're going to have. We hmm. may have other things. We're not going to have to worry about Edmonton. You have to worry about Edmonton right now. All right, uh, I brought up the Stampede. I used to live in Calgary for uh, three years. Way, way back. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah, it is. It's very cool. So I'm watching it. Um, I, I think because there was nothing else on at the time, and uh, so I'm explaining it to my son and how it all works and la 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 la. And all of a sudden, they do a thing on uh, PK Subban is there doing security. Did you hear about that? Of course, no, I didn't. But of course, he is. <laughs> I wouldn't be. Uh, what am I missing here? Huh? Well, is this for a TV show, or is he actually just doing it because he had free time and wanted to be security? I, I, I don't know the story. I don't know what he's doing there, but he's he's there, and he's greeting people and having a great time and uh, seems to be enjoying himself. So, uh, you know, why not, I guess? Well, as I said, I've not been to the Stampede. I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, Scott, to show you the level of intellect that you're talking to right now. When I was 13, I rode a bull in a rodeo. Uh, which was, uh, I injured myself. It was not a good idea. I, I would advise <laughs> well, those who well, ever well, have had the well, I'm going to well, get on the back of 2,000 pounds of snot, snarling feet. How, and, how does that uh, happen? Why would you do that? I was at a, uh, a ranch camp, and um, the opportunity presented. And uh, I thought, you know, that sounded like a good idea. And it wasn't. <laughs> I, 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 I would not do it again. I remember my uncle had a pig farm. Uh, this is way back when we were kids. And, um, and you know, just walking in the place, you know, as kids from the suburbs, we were just holding our nose. We couldn't do, we, we couldn't even handle it. Um, but my cousins who were obviously grew up on the farm, uh, for fun, they would jump on the hogs, the, the full grown uh -huh. hogs and try to ride them around the, um, you know, around the stall there. And uh, nobody was even going to try to do that, let alone get on a bull or anything of that sort. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you missed your calling here. No, I definitely did not. I figure when they thought to offer it, they, they correctly presumed, well, he's not going to be on for very long. So how much damage could it do? And they were <laughs> correct. I don't think they got the stopwatch started towards the eight-second thing before I was flying through the air. But it, um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was one of those things that, you know, I, like, some might say, "Oh, that's a bucket list item." No, no, no. That's that. That should not be a bucket. And why item. did you 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 were you were at camp? Were you covering something? Were you a kid? No, no, no. What, I was a kid. I was thirteen. I was oh. twelve or thirteen or fourteen. I don't know how old I was. And it was uh, it was a ranch camp, and they had an opening for someone to to ride the thing. And and again, like again, how bad could it be? Well, reasonably bad. <laughs> so why did Mister and Missus Radley send young Scott to a oh. ranch camp? Well, okay, so don't ask about, I mean, that doesn't matter because it was normally rather benign, but they didn't know that their 13 or 14-year-old son had volunteered to do this. They were there. They didn't know I was on the bull because I was wearing a hockey helmet until they yeah. announced, oh, and riding the bull, Scott Rather. And my dad, um, <laughs> he was one of the most safety-conscious people. I was a kid when we used to play road hockey. I was the only kid on the block who had to wear a helmet with a face mask because he yeah. was concerned of, like, losing an eye. Yeah. So th th for him, I never got a picture of his face when they when they announced that. But I, I I wish that I had seen because I'm reasonably sure I know what it would have looked like, and it was not good. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. 
Have a great weekend, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Todd emails exactly what Scott just said. Have yourself a great weekend. Keep right except the past. Nighty night.